Good morning, Grace family. My name is Eric, and uh, I'm the other Eric. Um, and it is, it is always a privilege uh, to be asked to share God's word with you. Um, and uh, thank you, Kenny, for leading us. And uh, he said there were going to be some surprise kind of pull out of the archive songs. How many of you, the last time you sang some of those songs was like back in the 80s or the 90s? Yeah, yeah. All right, I know I'm dating myself, but um, it's all right. Uh, we are still in Luke's gospel, and um, we are in chapter 18. So if you want to turn in your Bibles uh, over to chapter 18 or scroll or swipe uh, to Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through 30. Um, last week, Rob Lister preached on the famous passage of the, the children being brought to Jesus and Jesus setting up children as a model for how to enter the kingdom. And Rob said this that I wrote down, I think mostly, got it? Only those who see their desperate need for Jesus will receive his salvation. And unless you come in humble, dependent need, you will never enter the kingdom. So today's passage is another familiar one, uh, but, but maybe a harder one, because Jesus encounters a person who, in many ways, is exactly the opposite of a child. He's self-sufficient, he's wealthy, and he seeks the kingdom, but he cannot enter it. So let's read this passage together and see what the Lord has to speak to us today. Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father, 
May we listen with open hearts to your word. May we listen with humble hearts. May we listen with needy hearts. Father, show us through your word where we need to release our grasp on earthly things, on the idols that clutch at us. Lord, help us daily to take up our crosses, to count the cost, and to follow Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus as the prize above all prizes and above all treasures. Lord, may your Holy Spirit have his way with us this morning. Thank you for making us a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we walk through this passage, I want us to see at least five takeaways, five. So I'm gonna list them out now, and I'll repeat them as, as we go through, but there, there's probably more than five, and uh, maybe I could have winnowed it down to, to, to fewer than that, but here, here are five that I think are here. Number one, a reminder from the Gospel of Luke, discipleship will cost you everything. That's number one. Discipleship will cost you everything. Number two, if you trust Jesus enough to give you eternal life later, then you should be able to trust him with your earthly life now. If you trust Jesus to give you eternal life later, then we should be able to trust him with our earthly lives now. Number three, we're not good enough and our hearts are the problem. We're not good enough and our hearts are the problem. Number four, God does what is impossible for us, for us. God does what is impossible for us, for us. And number five, those who forsake all for the sake of following Christ will receive abundant life now by participation in the family of faith as well as eternal life. So those who forsake all for the sake of following Christ will receive abundant life now by joining and participating in the family of faith. So let's go through our passage and see how these things uh, emerge from this encounter with Jesus. We have a rich ruler. Uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel add that he is young. Um, but here is a ruler, and we're not sure what that means exactly, but he's uh, very possibly a ruler of a synagogue or something like that. And um, lest we, I don't know, compare ourselves, well, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this rich young ruler, um, this man is coming to Jesus for the right reasons. And this man knows enough about Jesus. He gets something right, doesn't he? How many people in the Gospels actually approach Jesus for eternal life? Most, most people who approach Jesus are either there to try to trap him or trick him or to maybe get a special healing or, or something like that or food. But this man is coming seeking the right thing. And he somehow believes, he recognizes that Jesus has the power and the authority necessary. Good teacher. 
Now, Jesus then answers the question with a question, and I love it when Jesus answers the question with a question. He questions the question. Why do you call me good? And I think the point of Jesus' question is to slow things down a little bit and correct this man's thinking. That is his understanding of personal righteousness and to expose the areas in which his understanding of good actually falls short. Uh, Rob said something great, he said a lot of great things last week, Rob, thank you. Um, But he said something last week that might be illuminating here. He says, kind of lamenting that we often find ourselves, at least I do, wanting to merit God's favor. I want to have a part in earning God's favor, Uh, you know, proving myself worthy. And it's hard to be certain, but some commentators think that possibly what's going on here uh, is that that's what's going on with this rich ruler. No doubt he would have had a very impressive resume. Like I said, he might have been the ruler of a synagogue, um, but, but he is extremely wealthy. So he's either managed to earn a lot of money and retain it or inherit a lot of money and, and have it and manage it. And to boot, he also seems to be religiously devout. No doubt he has people He has people under his authority. And as we heard last week, we need to come to Jesus like a child with a heart clear of boasting. And this ruler seems maybe a little quick to assure Jesus that his law-keeping passes muster. Look at the two commandments. Two, two, two conspicuous commandments that are missing from the list that Jesus starts to rattle off. The first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me, and the last, you shall not covet, which speaks to the heart that is too set on material things. And so Jesus asks him to sell out, all right, Prove you're serious. You did come to me for eternal life, right? You did say eternal life? So how serious are you? You seem to think I have some authority, some influence, like I'm a guy who can get you things. How much do you believe that? Do you believe all of your wealth? Because if you look to me for eternal life and trust me enough for that, you should be able to trust me with your life now. Jesus is putting this man's faith to the test. But we can't miss the second part. Yes, Jesus asks something huge of this rich ruler. But we'll miss the point of the story if we don't see the second part of Jesus' statement. He says, yes, sell all that you have and, and you will be have eternal life, distribute to the poor, and then come follow me. The invitation is not merely to eternal life, it's to follow me. Jesus is our treasure, and Jesus was right in front of this man, and he says, my yoke is easy. Recall Luke 9, 
verses 23 through 25, and so many, so many passages through the, through the gospel of Luke, we're just overwhelmed by these kinds of statements by Jesus, but, but just here's a case in point. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself. Discipleship will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. Now, at this point we should pause. At the dinner table last week, my, my, my son says, oh, you found out I was gonna be preaching on this passage. He says, oh, so you're gonna tell everybody to sell all their stuff? <laughs> no, we can all, okay, just. <laughs> Exhale, everybody. I felt like everyone was holding their breath for the last five minutes or so. We can't read this story as a formula, right, for earning eternal life. Let's re- recall this man is in a very particular, singular encounter with Jesus, and Jesus is issuing a special call on this particular individual, partly, I think, to call out the idolatry of his own heart, but also recall some other individuals, even through the Gospel of Luke, who Jesus asked special things from that were somewhat different which is to say that Jesus is calling on different people. It, it might look a little different in, in your situation. Think of, uh, these are actually all from chapter eight. Think of the, the, the man who had a legion of demons cast out, and he wanted to follow Jesus. He actually wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, 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 you're gonna stay here. You're gonna stay here, and you're gonna tell everybody what God has done for you. That's your calling. You're gonna give up literally following me to spread the good news where you are. In the same chapter, on the flip side, he, he, he raises Jairus' daughter and then he tells them, don't talk about it. And we just have to trust that Jesus was smart enough and knew enough of what he was doing. He knew what everything needed to, where everything needed to fall in place. And that was their particular calling. In the same chapter, we have a list of women who it says were wealthy. They were wealthy women. In particular, Joanna, wife of Chusa, Susanna, Mary Magdalene, and it says that they gave out of their wealth. They they were wealthy, but they helped fund Jesus' ministry. It doesn't say that they sold everything and gave it all to the poor, but they participated in the ministry through their wealth. But this man, getting a particular calling. He is getting the opportunity of a lifetime. You asked me for eternal life. Let's go. Follow me. I'll make you, I'll make you a part of something really big. And he can't. He can't do it. He goes away sad because it asks too much of him. And it is a sad, sad thing to see someone put more trust in worldly wealth or fill in the blank than in Jesus. No doubt, he had seen the miracles. He had heard the teaching. He knew. I wonder if he had heard the parable of the shrewd manager back in chapter 16. 
Uh, if you haven't listened to Fred Sanders' sermon uh, on that, I, I really encourage that. Just such a great view of, 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 of money and how we're supposed to look at it. Luke's gospel, by the way, is saturated with teaching about money and wealth and, and, and poverty and, and, and all of these things. But remember the, the verse from that story, that parable of the shrewd manager, make friends with unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, when it fails, not if it fails, you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I wonder if he had heard that. And so then <laughs> Jesus says how hard it is. And then he tells this amazing Comparison, this hyperbolic camel, eye of a needle, and we've all heard this one, right? It's so famous. Um, some of you may or may not know this. I had to be reminded of it. There was a Saturday Night Live sketch on this very figure. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Bill Pullman, this was years and years ago. And you had this guy, and he's this billionaire, okay? Uh, and he gets up and he says, I'm a billionaire, and you know, all this. But, but, but I started to wonder if this was all there was. So I read the Bible, and I came to this verse, and he reads the verse. Like, so. I formed the Hayward Foundation. And then he turns and he walks and he walks into this lab. He says, and I'm spending millions of dollars with a crack team of scientists to figure out how we can get a camel through the eye of a needle. <laughs> and they try, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a really weird sketch. I mean, you know, they try liquefying a camel, kind of drizzle it through. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, they got these dwarf camels that they're breeding. Hey, why don't we just build, you know, build a bigger needle, right? And he says, ah, something told us that maybe this was cheating. Um, it, <laughs> You guys are laughing a lot more than the studio audience uh, in, in New York City because I think we get it, right? It's like, I think a lot of people are like, what is, what is this exactly? Um, and, and the last part is just the greatest. It says, uh, you know, the Hayward found it. And then he says, actually, and if that doesn't work, I'll spend millions of dollars to get it taken out of the Bible. It's a strong tonic. But the, but the tagline at the very end is this, the Hayward Foundation, working hard to get Mr. Hayward into heaven. Now, this, it, it, I don't usually go to Saturday Night Live for really good theological satire, but <laughs> this one nails it. Um, there, are, there have been about you know, two strategies in general to try to blunt the force of this hyperbolic statement. And it's something along the lines of either, well, it's not a literal camel or it's not a literal needle. Okay, and maybe some of you have heard this if you've grown up in church, you know, oh, well, the eye of the needle was actually a, a gate, okay, at, uh, in the city, and, you, and, and the camel had to get down on its knees, and, uh, and uh, that probably wasn't true. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but it probably wasn't true. Uh, and, uh, you know, or, but, but, but uh, the word for camel sounds similar to the word rope. So maybe it was a rope, a rope. You know, oh, yeah, that helps. That really helps. Yeah. N no. Um, as the Cambridge Commentary in the New Testament puts it, <laughs> um, Jesus makes a hyperbolic comparison, and he mentions two extreme, the largest animal that they would have known of with the smallest thing they would have known, the smallest opening to highlight an impossibility. 
This radical exclusion of the prospect of the rich being saved by human efforts has not prevented some interpreters from trying to turn the impossible into the possible. And I think if we just actually read what's in the story, we would draw the same conclusion. Look at what Jesus says and the question that follows. Clearly, it indicates he's talking about a non-possible thing. And that's why we have got, you know, the random person in the crowd who, who shouts out, who says, you know, asks the question everybody's thinking, right? Who then can be saved? Because Jesus' audience would have assumed that worldly wealth was a sign of God's blessing and his favor. And so if this guy can't enter the kingdom, then who can? Do you know what question I would have been tempted to ask if I had been in the crowd? Define rich. (laughs) Just how rich do I have to be to be considered camel-sized, metaphorically speaking. If you came here in a car from a 20th century home, condo, apartment, dorm room, running water, indoor plumbing, you turned on your AC for the first time this weekend in a while, you might be considered rich. If you bought something on Amazon in one click last week without thinking twice because you wanted it, like I did, you might be considered rich. If you have recently complained about the limitations of a piece of technology whose development includes sophisticated terminology like microprocessor, AI, algorithm, wireless, or electricity, you might be considered rich. If you've eaten food today or yesterday or complained about food, not because you didn't have it, but because you did, if you looked into a closet full of clothing and said, I don't have anything to wear today, or to put it in Jesus' terms, if you have two tunics, let the reader understand. We really need to absorb the impact of this question from the crowd. Who then can be saved? Because whatever you do for God, whatever you give to God, It was already his, and you already owed it. And you could always give and do a little bit more. So it's not the failure to perform some single, grandiose, performative good work that keeps us from entering the kingdom. It's a heart that doesn't trust Jesus more than we trust our idols. Our hearts are the problem. We're not good enough, and it's our hearts that are the problem. With with man is it impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, we don't actually want this figure softened. 
I want camel, I have a needle. Why? Because if we could explain this away, then there might be a way to actually buy your salvation. But the gospel is this. God can do the impossible, and Jesus did do the impossible. Because in this story, there is not one rich young ruler. There are two. There's the one who was merely human, who had so much wealth, he probably didn't know what to do with it. And Jesus tells him what to do with it, and he failed. But then there is the God-man, Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, held on to, clung to, but rather he emptied himself. He laid it all aside for our sake. Jesus didn't ask anything of the rich man that he wasn't willing to do for our sake. He was rich beyond all measure. Jesus had everything because he made everything, and yet for our sake, he became poor so that he could distribute the gift of eternal life to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to the needy, to those who do not trust in themselves, in their wealth, in their righteousness, in their privilege, in their prestige, in their family, but trust in Jesus alone that his sacrifice is enough. So in Christ, God did what is impossible for us, and he did it for us. If you don't know this gospel, if you come away from this sermon thinking, oh, well, I just need to give away all my stuff and then I'll be a Christian, no. <laughs> now, maybe, who knows, maybe God is gonna call you to that, I don't know. Um, but don't miss the point. We're not good enough, but Jesus is. And we need to follow him and we need to value him and his kingdom enough to say, it's all yours. God can do the impossible because God alone can change the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can melt the heart that grasps at idols to relinquish them and to renounce them and to receive and follow Jesus. So are we trusting in the sufficiency of Christ? Or is our hope and attention fixed currently on some person or thing or idea or activity or lifestyle? Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's just stuff, right? Sometimes I feel like I'm serving my stuff more than my stuff is serving me. You ever feel that way? You clean the garage? Maybe it's job, maybe it's your career. Maybe it's just living for the weekend. Maybe it's our fitness, our health, our body image. Maybe it's a friendship that we just don't wanna give up. But we know that if we were to follow Jesus in a particular way, we might have to put it on the altar. Maybe it's a reputation within a social circle. Maybe it's access to that meeting behind closed doors in the room where it happens. Might be even within your own family. I know a lot of you have given up 
and are being asked to give up things, at least for now, that you value, people you value for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus says it's worth it. So look at what Jesus <laughs> says. And of course, at, at this point, Peter chimes in. It's always Peter. <laughs> hey, look at us. <laughs> yes, Peter, I see your hand again, yes. But, but I, I love that Jesus doesn't actually rebuke him this time. We've left, we've left our houses, we've left everything, and Jesus, now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, and that's why you get eternal life. He doesn't say that. But he also doesn't let anybody off the hook, right? He doesn't promote this kind of easy believism. He doesn't calm their anxieties by saying, oh, well, don't worry, everybody, because that's actually why I'm going to Jerusalem. See, I'm gonna die in everybody's place, uh, and then I'm gonna impute my righteousness, and all you need to do is pray the sinner's prayer, okay? Hey, somebody... <laughs> get that rich guy back here, come on, you know, give him a tract. I was just trying to make a spiritual point. Remember what Eric Tana said uh, a couple weeks ago? He says, we can't have a domesticated view of Jesus that fits our lifestyle. Following Jesus requires a traumatic transformation. A traumatic transformation. Speaking of traumatic, let's, let's think about the calling of Peter. Um, I, w I was thinking about this. Yeah, well, how, how is that described? If you want to turn real quick, go back to Luke chapter five. Luke gives us a little bit more backstory with the calling of, uh, of Peter. And they're by the lake. And I'm, I'm going to summarize some of this. And, and remember, they're, you know, they're washing their nets. And, and uh, there's Simon there. And uh, they've been fishing. And... Uh, haven't been terribly successful. And uh, Jesus tells them, says, uh, hey, put, put out into the deep and let down your nets a catch. And he says, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. I'm sure a fisherman wants to be told by a, a carpenter how better to fish when he's done all that he knows how to do and has been toiling away. But he says, okay. okay. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come to help them and they filled both the boats and they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man. That is humble, dependent need. And Jesus says, no, come with me. You think that's something. I'm going to have you catch men. And it says they left their nets and left everything to follow him. Those who forsake all for the sake of following Christ, will not just get eternal life, but look at what Jesus says here. They will receive abundant life now by participation in the family of faith. Truly I say to you, there is no one 
who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life and in the ages to come eternal life. Sam Albury puts it this way, commenting on this. Uh, he's actually responding to using Mark's account, but, but it, it fits here. He says, uh, Jesus doesn't just tell them to grit their teeth and wait for the age to come when it will finally all be worth it. No, Jesus shows them that it will be worth it even in this life. Whatever someone might have to leave behind to follow him, he will replace in far greater measure a hundredfold. This is the true prosperity gospel. Jesus doesn't promise us greater wealth and prosperity if we follow him. He doesn't promise a glowing property portfolio uh, if we go all in with him. He doesn't say for every dollar you give him, you'll get back a hundred. No, he's saying the cost is relational and so too is the blessing. In short, Jesus promises us a family. He promises us a family. Luke wrote another book of the Bible, the sequel, the book of Acts. Some of you might be in Acts right now. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, 44 through 47, and then there's another verse in, in, in chapter 4. Notice that after Jesus fulfills the work that God the Father had set out for him to do, and he rises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven, and he pours out the promised Holy Spirit, and the gospel is preached, thousands begin coming to follow this new way, to follow this Messiah. Acts chapter two, verses 44 through 47, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful picture. The family of God expanding, starting in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, even to the Caucasus Mountains and places like that. And then in chapter four, verse 32, now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. When you follow Christ and renounce all of the things that so easily entangle us, as I said, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and run the race that is set before us. Jesus, I can't remember who put it this way, but Jesus writes a check that the church then cashes and, and, and funds. Right? We have got to be the family of God, and we are. And we value one another. And we look at one another not just as, oh, hello, fellow member, 
fellow attender. Remember what Jesus says earlier in the book of Luke. Behold, my brothers, my mother, my sister. Those who hear the word of God and do it. We are all brothers, sisters, spiritual mothers and fathers and children of one another. Everyone in this room. Your family gets bigger. That's a beautiful thing. When I think back to all of the rough seasons uh, of, of my life and my wife and I, we've, we've gone through some very, very hard seasons. But when I think back to those hard seasons, we have felt the most loved, we have felt the love of God the most through his church, through our brothers and our sisters and our spiritual mothers and fathers. And so church, let's be that. Let's follow Jesus and let's renounce whatever it is we need to renounce. And maybe that could be a, 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 an item for discussion in grace group, right? Think about the things we put on our spiritual brag sheets. Maybe read back through Luke and, and, and see, see, see a bigger, broader picture here about how we should use our wealth and our resources together. Think about our stuff Think about what it would mean to travel light for the sake of the gospel. Think about what it would mean to be a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, a spiritual brother, sister, and really, really lean into those hard relationships, but for the sake of expanding this kingdom and for the sake of expanding this family of God. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word. We are humbled by the righteous demands that it shows us. And Lord, we confess we are not righteous. Father, help us to regard ourselves with true humility. May we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help us not to brag and boast before you. Father, help us to lay down everything we have for the sake of following Lord, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you laid aside everything. For our sake, you became poor so that we could inherit all things. May we have the same mind as we continue our walk through this life and into the life to come. Amen.